Greetings there, SE land. This is Twig. Anthony Twig Wheeler here with another episode of Twig's SE Reflections podcast. This is an audio archive created specifically for somatic experiencing students and practitioners everywhere. Folks that have been studying the psychobiological literature, the somatic healing arts, what's sometimes called the new traumatology. My name's Twig, Anthony Twig Wheeler. You can find out more about me at my website, liberationispossible.org. Also more about this project at liberationispossible.org backslash reflections or on Facebook, Twig's SE Reflections. Today's episode, episode X, is going to look at existential threats, creative and catastrophic thinking, how SE practitioners can think about and help their clients from flipping out on the news, on their thought process, on the sense of doom that could come for any number of reasons. Any number of reasons a person could be attracted to such things and find themselves with a faster heart rate and difficult making decisions, participating with their own existence. The feeling that their own existence might get wiped out or the ones they love or care about or broader still, their neighborhood, their country, their planet. What is to be done for people who feel the acute distress of worrying about what might happen. That's the theme for today. We'll call it episode X. And on the way in, I'll name a few contract things and a few catch up on you, what's going on there, twig kind of stuff. First, episode 99 and 100, which longtime listeners will know I am kind of working my way through in order to complete this project with 100 episodes in the archives. Those are still to come. 99 is on session moments or special session moments or moments that stand out in sessions or better probably said moments that I'm prepared to say something about that I think are interesting. That's episode 99 and 100 is going to be my reply to a request, a question that came after episode 50, which was in SE, what is it we're doing anyway? Like, what do you think that we're doing? What is this about? And I would like to offer my answer to that in episode 100. So those are still to come on the way there. This episode X, it just needed my attention and it has taken my attention for several months trying to get at this, which leads us then into the contract for today. This, I should tell you, this is heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. If you're not up for heavy stuff, if you recognize that we live in a time that we, you, you specifically, and I, we all do, need to protect ourselves from the heavy, the heavy all the time. Today, this, my voice, is going to talk about heavy stuff. If that's not for you today, probably best to move somewhere else. Try something else out. You can come back to this episode whenever you want. Absolutely. You'd be welcome back. It'll just be waiting here, waiting until you want to talk about something heavy. So be warned, this is heavy. Then I should also say, this is my stuff. In other words, like the speaker, this guy, Twig, 
I've been touched, and and many of you listeners know this by just about not all, not all, but a lot of the PTSD symptomology, real startle response as an example. I had a startle response that would startle other people. I had a vigilance that just wouldn't quit and an attraction to danger that I'm surprised I'm not a Darwin Award for. I, I was gripped by that kind of stuff. But nothing through my entire life has impacted me or been as close to my experience as catastrophic thinking. As an example, when I was in the sixth grade, 12 years old, my teacher invited the class to offer a suggestion what the theme of the sixth grade promotion should be. And it turned out to be a song by Whitney Houston, a student offered, you know, We Are the Children. Lovely, great, we were. My offer was to draw the circle of a bomb with a fuse coming off of it and fill in that circle with all the continents on the planet and then write in big, bold letters around this image, the world is going to go boom. I was 12 years old. I was preoccupied. Age of Reagan, nuclear weapons, mad, mutually assured destruction, Cold War stuff, just absorbing the culture, you know? And that quality of worry and propensity to creatively think about the end and what could happen. I've had that. I've had that a lot. It's been my predominant torture and a huge bit of relief that has come, in fact, from somatic experiencing. Before I got into SE, I had full-on active paranoia in the sense of constantly hiding myself in my world and my life for fear of what was about to happen to me. And in that hiding would recapitulate and reimagine the catastrophes that exist and are happening and are coming out here in the broader world. It was just a preoccupation to sit up at night and read about the American Holocaust or the European Holocaust or the Jewish Holocaust or famines. And it was just too much, too much, too much. And so much relief came to that through getting really high quality somatic experiencing sessions and knowing that I needed some help with this thing because it was kind of killing every everything that I had going. So then this is my stuff. And I'll tell you, I've tried to record this episode like six times. I've spent like over 50 hours <laughs> trying to share this this whatever amount of time, this next 40, 50, 80 minutes that we're about to go into here with you. You know, I, I even, I was in Japan in December and I tried to do it. I had a little time in Hiroshima and I was like talking about existential threat from Hiroshima and too heavy, too, too heavy. So there have been a lot of attempts here. And what I keep seeing each time I do it is that I'm not assured to do a good job. I think my heart goes faster and my thoughts go a little slower, or a little less cohesive when I get near this. It's my thing. So I put that in the contract here to say at the beginning, this is heavy and there's probably more twig in this episode than, than we might you know expect. At the same time as I say that, I am aware that I am not the only one. Not at all. I've had many, many, many clients 
who could read the press and it would ruin their day, even when the press was fairly relatively at ease and not quite as disorderly and, and threatening as it can be at other times. And it can still grab people. I mean, it just like <laughs> grabs people. And I've had plenty of clients who are caught in that way, get caught in that way. And I know that plenty of you have times when it's just heavy to be aware of what could go wrong, or you're personally caught by the sense that something is sure to go wrong. And you probably have clients that have that same thing too. I'm not saying all of us or anybody everywhere is caught by existential threats, in fact, or the sense of them, the worry of them, the preoccupation with them. In fact, that's part of what this episode talks about is, you know, there's a wide range of response to worry and catastrophic thinking and such. And in the contract here, I'm, I'm aware some of us, some of you are, are dealing, you know, so let's just take it all in stride here. Yeah, this is something that needs to be talked about from um, this podcast. Clearly, I got to do this. So let's do this and we'll see what happens next. Okay, then. Contract in place. Before going on and talking about what practitioners can do for our clients, what we can do to help people not get quite so wrapped up in things, or if they are wrapped up in things, what can we do for them when they are? Before going there, acknowledging that it's probably not going to be any kind of magic wand or simple thing of just getting a person to stop doing that or think their way out of it or some such. Assuming that it's not a simple formula, let's go behind the scenes a little bit and talk about, let's think about what is happening when we're talking about or when we're seeing the phenomena of catastrophic thinking and being taken by existential threat. And what do we know about it? Actually, by when I say that, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be exhaustive about all those things. So let's look at it somewhat, you know, let's, let's get in here some. First thing is that this is definitely a traumatological piece on some level. Not for everybody, but there's no question for shortened future, sense of catastrophe, impending doom, repetitive attraction to distress and danger, flashbacks and flash forwards. These kinds of things are really well known to be traumatic traumatological in origin or influenced by the traumatic reaction. People with PTSD can imagine through to the worst end. Not all of them do that, but they can. You know, it's like part of the thing. You can get kind of wrapped up in what bad is going to happen. Definitely a trauma piece here. And not only a trauma piece a psychohistorical condition as well. If we look at the range of concerns and what kind of concerns a person can have today, we can see a steady change, or maybe not so steady, but we can see a dramatic change over the course of human history 
of what people had to worry about and how threatened they were by what they had to worry about. And that makes this a psychohistorical condition where you don't have to personally be traumatized to be attracted to the notion of excess, like attracted to in the sense of being touched by and really influenced by the existence of existential threats or things that could take you out that you can't do anything about. You don't only have to have a traumatic past in order to be taken in that way. You might have a proclivity to it, a sensitivity to it, because there is this traumatological piece that can be involved in this. And you could just be a member of a modern society with awareness that there are things out there that are bigger than you that have risk, major, major risk associated to them. And you can just, you know, be inside of your times. Clearly, clearly. So what could we say there? For example, when I use the word existential threat, it's generally taken to mean something like your people or your group that you identify with or a unit of some sort, a social group, a nation state, when it is in a kind of challenge with its existence, when something could take itself out, that's the kind of most typical use of existential threat out there in the world. Also, you hear it or can see it applied to individuals where there is just the sense of this thing could take away my existence. And that could come down to a cancer diagnosis, to personal or social financial turmoil, family members in harm's way out in the military or in immigration, people who are targeted because of their membership in a group, victims who anticipate seeing their perpetrator again. There are plenty of reasons to have personal worry that gives you this sense of impending doom. And then there are like global things, there are broader things, there are historical things. For example, there's a phrase out there that is explicitly used to describe things that could take out humanity or all of biodiversity, life in general. Those, that term is existential risk. That's coined by Nick Bostrom, who's done an analysis since 2001 was the first time it was published of kind of a growing list of potential factors or forces that could essentially wipe everything out. And in the past, that list was relatively small. It was kind of climate change from industrial production, nuclear weapons after World War II, and pandemics from kind of disease process. But even that one would be unlikely to take out all humans. So there's like a whole risk assessment thing here where it's they have phrases, existential risk for something that could take out everything, catastrophic global, catas uh, global catastrophe means that it impacts everything, everybody, but it doesn't make it so that the species doesn't get to continue. Existential risk makes it so the species can't continue, or if it does continue to live for a while, it's unable to continue the process of civilization. That's part of that pattern. So this assessment kind of stuff is out there 
based on a growing list, like I say, of technologies mostly that increase the chance, the possibility of something going terribly wrong. Nanotechnology, biotechnology, um, antagonistic AI, antagonistic strong AI, artificial intelligence, uh, robotics, uh, which would have an AI uh, component to that. There's these technologies that are actively being pursued, some of which, many of which, have these wild worst case scenarios that are in fact somewhat real. And because they have such a dramatic potential for impacting humanity, there are philosophers and conferences and some amount of dialogue around trying to contain these risks. If you get involved in paying attention to any of that, you could get taken by the fact that these things are real and every day in the press one can read about small little advancements that are part and parcel to leading toward the execution of one of those risks. Like any advancement in nanotechnology takes us one step closer to something like the ICE-9 theory in Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut or what they call the gray goo theory in nanotechnology where a bad actor, as they usually call them, like a scientist who, or a government that takes on the science of nanotechnology and turns it against everything else, a nanoparticle then could be made to kind of transform other molecules around it into self-similar molecules of itself. And if it was made to be like a gray goo, then it could just turn the planet and all the particles on the planet into gray goo. That's a kind of one of the examples of the possible existential risks that are associated to nanotechnology. There, there are just countless of these things. Of course, we have long known about the prospect of nuclear Armageddon and nuclear war and such as being one of these existential risks, existential threats. Those are all modern, like super modern, like modern technological civilization. And they're pretty much the first time in history that anything could take out everything. These new technologies that we're creating right now, and just a few that have been created in the last 60 years, have that capacity for impacting all. Before that, there were times of great hardship and huge problems and catastrophic wars and floods and um, earthquakes and sedentary societies that caused massive damage and hurt and pain and forces that could take people out that were out of their control. But there wasn't necessarily anything other than the thought of mind of a catastrophic flood or a catastrophic like Armageddon in some kind of, yeah, the end times business, the apocalypse outside in reality of what could happen to take everything out. It was more or less non, well, asteroids, you know, pretty much it. 
So that, however, I, I come to this, that doesn't mean that people didn't worry or have reason to worry in similar ways that we might think about here. As an example, you and I, we are agricultural people. Now, at the same time, you, you know, you and I might not have anything to do with agriculture, but our society is based on an agricultural access to food. And our food coming from agriculture at this moment feels very stable for most of us. Not everywhere, not everywhere at all, but probably if you're listening to me here, you and I exist in some kind of place where food feels very stable and we can have enough food and there has been enough food most of the time. That's not at all the historical condition of agriculture. That is a result of the Haber process, which is an industrial process of removing nitrogen from the air and fixating it into artificial fertilizer in order to fertilize the soil with that nitrogen. The thing about agriculture is that it concentrates the extraction of nitrogen from the soil. In a native or wild habitat, there'll be a mixture of different plants, some of which are fixating nitrogen, some of which are removing nitrogen, and there's a limit to how intensive that nitrogen cycle will go. There are other cycles. There are plenty of other nutrients involved in this and nitrogen is a major one it kind of has a major impact on plants ability to grow and utilize the power in photosynthesis it's what helps them grow and turn green so in this way photosynthesis the primary reason that they turn green of course it's this that the nitrogen kind of fuels a major link part of that process so in this new process called the haber process no let's say it this way Agriculture in itself has this depleting influence on the soil because we concentrate which plants we want to grow on a particular plot of land, and we turn essentially various different nutrients and sunlight into the thing that we are growing. That requires this accelerated use of nitrogen out of the soil, and historically that has depleted the soil. Other things happen to saltification when, when agriculture uses water and um, irrigation, topsoil erosion from breaking up the surface of the ground and having it wash away in the rain. There are lots of other reasons that agriculture has a depleting influence, and yet we're able to more or less stay above that currently because of this thing called the Haber process, which uses petrochemicals, uses what essentially leads to our gasoline, using that for industrial process to fixate this nitrogen out of the air, that has allowed for a stability in agriculture for the last hundred years or so. And what it hides or what it makes less aware, makes us less aware of, is that historically in agricultural times and agricultural peoples, famine was a regular part of existence. Many reports that I used to look into in this kind of way, talk about famine being a cyclical thing that would come on average around 30 years in most areas of the world, which is to say that agricultural peoples are intermediary ancestors, say going back 500,000 years. In most communities that were agriculturally based, 
there was some preoccupation with the fact that at any time the crops could fail. That wouldn't impact everybody all the same. There would be different stratas of society that that would impact. But a great number of people then, particularly because it would be poor people who would be most close to the bone when that famine came, would have plenty of reason to worry on a regular basis that some catastrophe was going to come that they couldn't do anything about. And there are plenty of other historical influences on that same kind of thing from slavery and forced migration and war and assimilation, um, just the horses coming down on the steppes across eastern Siberia and northern China, just, you know, catastrophic kind of stuff. And certainly plenty of time that people were actively worried and stressed out there about things that they couldn't do anything about. Things that had all of the feeling state and prospect of being able to take out everything that they might know and or care about. Interestingly, if we go further back and we look into what we know about hunter-gatherer peoples and foraging peoples, pre-agricultural peoples who weren't reliant on food accumulation, didn't have population growth in relationship to food accumulation, which would put farming people at a tremendous disadvantage when their food supplies were to give out, because then they would have more, they would, their population had gotten bigger and they had more mouths to feed. So the impact of losing food was that much more catastrophic to the population and the sense of well-being amongst the population. If you go back into hunter-gatherer life, the dynamics are very, very different than that. And it is rare both to hear about or find any stories of catastrophe or apocalypse or end times. And it's very rare to see events or threats that are out of the norm. There are th threats, there are challenges, there's major things to do on the planet that one has to deal with from weather to fights to animals to hunger. And yet rarely in the hunter-gatherer context are the threats so big and broad that you can't within yourself and within your context do something in relationship to it. You can't respond in some way. So there is this kind of interesting thing that being involved in what we would call the modern environment as compared to the ancestral environment, the agricultural environment, has this rising influence from broader forces that individuals can do less and less about as those forces become more and more impersonal and have a bigger and broader capacity for influencing somebody's life and everybody's life and everything that a person might be attached to. So in that way, this is kind of like a personal thing. It's a traumatological thing for some. It's also a psychohistorical thing. And at times, it can impact, clearly that does this, it can impact a group. A lot of times, it impacts an individual where a person feels 
ill at ease. A person feels that they're in danger. A person feels that this thing is impacting them in a way that it's maybe difficult to explain to other people. While at other times, it's just like a social movement helps you to see that everything's in danger. A current famine or a coming war helps you to reflect constantly on the danger as a existential threat that you could you could not be able to continue to exist when this thing comes to get you obviously currently in the present moment late 2016 early 2017 there's a bit of extra rub around this there's a little not a little there's a fever in fact amongst some of an increased sense of existential threat. And if we look back at that review right there and recognize that from continuing technological advancement to continuing degradation of the biosphere to continued use of petrochemicals, which I didn't mention, but that's one of the major ones out there is a peak oil, Hubbard's number, Hubbard's theory of like oil depletion, it's a finite resource. So that has another peak in it that has a catastrophic storyline behind it. There are just so many psychohistorical reasons that don't need the fever of this moment for you and I, dear practitioner, to recognize that there are plenty of reasons to worry. You know, there's a, there's a line out there that says that Mark Twain once said, that those who are inclined to worry have the widest selection in history. And I, I've looked for that quote from Twain several times and haven't been able to find it, but it's attributed to him. Those who are inclined to worry have the widest selection in history. That is more true today than ever before. Now, what's going on with all of those from our perspective is kind of interesting and what we need to get to here now. It's like each of those things in an almost perfect ex expression show the way that we think about trauma stuff, or at least some of the great definitions of what trauma is or what causes trauma to happen. Mimic or are just perfect representations of these notions of existential threat existential risks, catastrophic, global catastrophic risks, these historical conditions of, of danger to communities, the impact on threatened populations, all of this. It's like they say, trauma is a result of going through an overwhelming experience in the state of helplessness. It's like one of the ways that they talk about it. It's it's that you can't respond. You know, that's like one of the central features of it. You have this sense, obviously, that something is wrong. You want to respond to it. The nature of an overwhelming experience, it's like this thing that's coming to get you, this bad thing is happening. And you want to respond. And this sense of helplessness, this sense of I can't do the thing that I am trying to do in order to get this not to happen. I generally think about the dynamics in the stress response and arrested stress response slightly different than that. But that's a classic definition. The overwhelming experience and the sense of helplessness leads to the traumatic reaction. 
And if you look at the sense of existential threat or this kind of like, I can imagine the worst case scenario and I can feel the impact of it. That's how I'm thinking about it here for us, right? And that as I have that association, it causes for me this sense of impact. It influences my experience right now. It's a very similar kind of thing. The truth is, if you know about existential threats that could come to get you, if they really are that thing in their nature, it's very unlikely that you can do anything about them. It's very likely that they're overwhelming, that the, the notion is it's not just going to hurt you a little bit, it's going to take you out. It's, it's the end of something. It's the, the, the notion of my existence is, is what am I, how, what are we gonna do? All of that, that big kind of like, whoa, stuff and can't do anything about it. It's impersonal forces. It's historical forces. It's biological forces. It's technological forces. It's big, out of one's control. And that creates serious complications, just like it does for the traumatic reaction when a person goes through a fall and feels like they can't help themselves through that fall and the response to that threat gets more or less locked up in their system and then at other times repeats the sense of that threat unhelpfully and unnecessarily. That's a notion. When we come to that, we could we could be like, well, what's, what's going on inside the individual for this? And you know, probably somebody else would, would mark it out slightly differently. I think there could be a really nice argument for how you could see this going on in the brain. We could think about this, you and I, from an SE perspective as a coupling dynamics kind of thing, right? Where a likely pattern, it's not the only pattern, a likely pattern is to be exposed to the thought, an image, a message, a comment, a newspaper article, a remembrance, something that tells you, oh, there is this overwhelming threat out there. And have it strike you enough, touch you enough that you then have some kind of somatic response or physical representation of impact from that thought, that awareness, that contact with that idea. And in having that sensation, that physical felt sense response, it then tells from inside that the body says, I feel like I'm threatened. I feel like I need to do something to respond to that threat. Well, it's unlikely you have anything to do. There's nothing to do about it. It just is a thought, as it were. And the feeling of having this uncomfortable experience that would normally say, turn and run away if it was an immediate threat that you could do something about, but instead it's a threat that feels amorphous and ubiquitous and beyond your control. It's like, what do you do about it? You don't know and you have this weird feeling inside that maybe it catches your breath a little bit and the feeling of having a little bit more constricted breathing gives the feeling like maybe something is a little bit more that wrong because if I'm feeling like I have a clenched chest, then maybe there really is something wrong. And then we would get a feedback 
from that sensation and overcoupling back over to the thought process that says, see, I really am in danger. That's why I have this feeling state that says I'm not being able to breathe very well, which could easily reinforce the thought and say, see, there's this real reason to be worried about this thing because every time I think about it, I feel short of breath and feel like I can't breathe normally. And that could overcouple itself into where, in fact, as I could very well attest, a person could just have a panic attack through the night or through the next couple days. It is entirely possible for something like that to happen based on simple the seed of a thought process that just starts to say, there's this danger out there that I'm touched by and I can't do anything about. And here goes off a sequence of me essentially sitting in the sense of helplessness and yet having my reaction at that point, including a somatic reaction, overcouple itself just into a flurry of activity that feels completely involuntary and out of one's control. It's true. That's something that happens. It's happening somewhere right now to somebody, hopefully none of you, while you're listening to me here, even as I play it out a little bit faster there. Apologize. Take a look around, huh? Whoo! It's like a real thing. I mean, you know, it's such a real thing that if you've ever read a single book about trauma, any book about trauma, you will have come across commentary on this thing that they call voodoo death. And they use it in the traumatology literature to prove out just how real these relationships are. And what voodoo death is, you know, now they often rename it to psychosomatic death. And, well, you know, the notion is that somebody gets a curse or a, well, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story. It's a perfect way to explain it. I ran across this myself in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2008 or 2009. I was there two times. I think this was 2008. And I was in a small village out there in the war affected area. And I was meeting with women in these communities. We were trying to talk about their symptoms from the effects of the war and what they could do and any way that I might be able to help or their local friends and families and such could help. And after these meetings, I would meet with specific people who the community would kind of introduce to me as somebody they'd like to have get a little extra attention. And so I was meeting with folks in that way. And sometimes, you know, some more helpful, sometimes less helpful, but more or less always something that we could maybe work toward and try to help a little bit. It's true. It helped. At the same time, I met with a woman there at in this one village who had suffered through the war and the violence against women that had happened. And then afterwards had been shunned by her husband and then shunned by her village. There's kind of a terrible thing that happens sometimes where the victims get blamed in these communities. It's just terrible. And in that way, she had fled her home village and ended up in this other place where I met her. And the people there in this new village had really taken her in and built her a small hut just like everybody else had and were doing their best to include her in the community and they had insisted that she meet with me and I see if I could help in some way and I tried we met for about 45 minutes I think and 
there was nothing I could do. It was just remarkable. Um, not that I, you know, was so special that I should be able to do something all the time, but it, it, it just was immediately obvious to me that her preoccupation with the curse that her husband had placed on her when he shunned her, it was taken inside of her as such a likely thing that at any moment she was going to die. That was the curse. She was going to die if she left. That the curse was going to come get her and she was going to perish. And so anything that I could try to do to help her to pause from that or stop thinking about that or get some relief from a somatic response or anything, nothing, nothing at all. And when I parted from her, I was worried. I'm worried to this day since I've not ever had any update from her. But I was worried that she would have what Walter Cannon called voodoo death, where she would, you know, um, get so worked up and so worried that her body would feel that in such a strong way that her heart, and this was the way it used to be thought of, was that her heart would go so fast that she would have a heart attack and die. And that, that's what they used to think of was voodoo death. And so it's a kind of psychosomatic thinking, feeling, overcoupled sequence that leads to the body just expiring. Nowadays, we would give a more Porgesian lens to that, right, from a polyvagal perspective. And we see that what actually happens usually, or what we anticipate would happen in that scenario is that the heart elevates to such an extent, the fear response elevates to such an extent, the, in that case, probably flight response is going off so much, the heart going so fast, that the body feels that it's in a life-threatening circumstance and instead faints and shuts off, collapses, goes into a freeze immobility state dominated by the dorsal vagal system, which slows the heart rate, dramatically slows the heart rate and causes less oxygen to get to the brain. And if that fall is precipitous enough or sharp enough or various different physiological things happen that make it intense enough, it can have an animal expire. Porges, Stephen Porges, he talks about how when they do this in laboratory settings, that 20% of the mice that go into that state perish just from going into that state. Of course, you and I know that a lot of people go into freeze immobility and come out of it eventually. And, and even if it becomes a repetitive thing, and if they have the opportunity to come into our sessions and renegotiate that, it could very well be something that just passes from their life. And yet, it can, it has, it will again, it has and does kill people. It's like a thing, a historical thing, like a biological thing, a thing that has happened in the world and we can see that there's a kind of a range inside of this, right? Along that trauma spectrum, thinking about things, there's a way of like, how much am I impacted by this catastrophic thinking? How strong a neuroceptive cue does it have on me to put me in the sense of threat? Clearly, there's a long range of responses to being aware of that there are grand dangers out there, dangerous to individuals or dangerous to communities or dangerous to the population or dangerous to the world. Like there's an entire slew of them. 
And clearly, different people have different responses to how impactful that awareness is on their lives. I, for example, spent decades entrenched in reflecting and reviewing these things and just turning my attention back in what Stephen Hoskinson used to just call for me a complete addiction to the red vortex. I was just going back into that death spiral to find more evidence of why I should feel the way that I felt. Just constantly, chronically, it ruined all of my relationships. It made me drop out of school. It just did did everything to take me away from being able to be in the moment. And I was only in one, one area along the spectrum, you know, like there's, there's an entire other range in there. There's, there are people who could end up actually in psychosomatic death from such thoughts. There are people who could end up in a catatonic, constant shutdown state or a manic flipping back and forth state. There could be like me, slightly broader, but more or less was just compelled to the repetition of the danger sense until I would have collapse and then I'd get back into the danger as soon as I could get up out of it. And then there's like, you know, amazingly, there are people who are touched and affected. And if they put their attention toward helping themselves feel better, they cannot be so impacted and they can respond more accurately to the present tense circumstances in their lives while still recognizing that they get taken by these worries and concerns, personal or historical or political. Then there are people who, you know, they, they can have these responses. They can be touched by the news or f knowing about the worries and concerns of things and have that response touch them, affect them, and remarkably, move through them, where it's like its own feeling state, reaction, response, and does its thing, leaves the person more or less back here in peace as though the completion of a stress response moment, and then able to respond appropriately to the present tense, like even without work, like even totally possible that it's just like, wow, that touches me, wow, I cry, wow, the crying moves through. Wow, I feel better. Now time to get back to whatever else or is that I need to do next. Then, you know, like there are people who probably just aren't touched by it very much at all. Doesn't really impact them. And I suppose some of those folks are sane and are just very, um, I don't know, at ease with the way it is or more comfortable in the face of uncertainty or don't have existential concerns per se, all the way down to, you know, some kind of area where um, people are in complete denial about it touching them or having any kind of influence or impact, maybe from an adaptive denial of, I don't want to have contact with it, to a complete denial or dissociation where it just really isn't a concern, to perhaps, truthfully, there must be people, I know them, that are enthusiastic about any kind of danger they're in. Like in times, like bring it on. Let's, let's, let's jump through that fire. And um, 
that that must be somewhere on the spectrum although i suspect just going to project i suspect that has something of a both traumatological and psychohistorical etiology to it and yet who am i to say well look along that whole range you know we could probably imagine that if you turn up the heat the danger on anybody you're going to see more of the preoccupation that there could be worried that something big could go wrong for them like the further away the existential threats are from you the easier it is to be touched and have the feeling move through the closer the danger is to you the harder for that feeling to move through and that must be the case for everywhere along that spectrum oh you know before we go on to what we can do for people should probably name a few things that might be more particular to the kind of work in relationship that you and I might understand about existential threat and why a person might be more or less given to worrying about things or catastrophic thinking or being caught in the for example the overcoupling sequence that could come that leads to the feeling of you know kind of internalized distress and feeling state grief and big feeling even when the threat isn't imminent or or upon when like what makes people some people what made me as an example more sensitive to those ideas and other people less or not so much so i'm saying that i suspect you could find broader reasons than traumatological ones but let's name a few traumatological ones that must be a part of this not must be a part of this that could be a part of this could be playing a part one of course would be uh things that anybody who's been looking at developmental character structure kind of things or developmental trauma would probably recognize or have heard called the existence structure the existence structure is kind of a current term most often for the time the developmental window of the in utero period where a infant or a, not an infant at that point a fetus is in the embryological stages of development inside the mother's belly and there are kind of thoughts and thinking about how in that time there are, is a critical window for the establishment of the rhythm of existence that says it's safe enough for me to be here incarnate on this planet in this body and one of the challenges of stabilizing that feeling state that my existence here is safe i can be inhabiting my my body as it were one of the challenges to that might be chronic stress or distress in the mother who would then of her own have to be responding to the world or dangers or challenges around her or inside of her leading to active ongoing stress response experience inside her own physiology which would then be releasing stress hormones and other similar signals to the fetus which would then be giving the baby the feeling state at a more or most vulnerable kind of place inside of its developmental sequence to say wow you know this this is dangerous i have to um like i i can't 
I can't just be at ease here. I'm getting all these toxic chemicals that are giving me this sense of distress. And different people would talk about that in different ways from metaphor to the precise neurological impact of those stress hormones. Here we could say that it isn't thought to give kind of into the theory that folks who have that distressing in utero time may be prone or have this sense of it not being safe to exist as they grow up into their lives, that they might have a perpetual return to the notion of some kind of like take me away from here kind of thinking state, feeling state, impressions of the universe. There's more to that than this, what I've just described. And definitely folks with existence structure issues would be more likely to be attracted to thoughts and questions about existence from the notion of threats that are out there that might come and get us. That is one part of the field out there. You'll, you'll come across that if you're in this field. You'll know that as you meet with people, you'll hear them talk sometimes and you'll wonder, how far back does this sense of annihilation, impending doom, how far back does this go? For some of us, it goes back right to the beginning. Then, too, of course, if you grew up in any kind of catastrophic environment where things were regularly, repeatedly going wacko, you know, the sense of something going to happen that is wrong and dangerous coming back to you, it's pretty easy to see why that would become a repetitive notion and worry. Classic complex PTSD kind of stuff there. Near-death experiences, those, those tend to reproduce things like this, the feeling of going away, the feeling of not being allowed to be here, the feeling that at any moment I could just be disappeared attachment issues as they as we often call them you know like attachment and loss grief and fear of losing a loved one or a stabilizing influence in one's life we i we you and i we will have clients who the fear of losing a partner or even the fear of having a partner and then losing a partner could almost reproduce or does reproduce this same kind of sequence of catastrophic thinking oh no what's going to happen when and oh no, I won't be able to do anything about it. It feels like an existential threat. My existence will be wiped out. And of course, global high intensity activation is a perfect reflection of the thought that comes in, seeds itself, and just grows as a escalating concern until I feel overwhelmed by it and reinforce some kind of collapse state. That's a kind of perfect reflection of what might happen for somebody who's attracted to existential threats. So therefore people with global high activation might, you know, get turned on to the notion of thinking or feeling in this way or being attracted to problems that reflect these kinds of, oh no, everything could end. And with that, global high activation is a is almost a runway toward catastrophic thinking. Surely there are more. And the point here is that it doesn't exist on its own very often. It's usually kind of like mixed up, particularly for folks who get really caught by it in the felt sense kind of way that it's like impending doom and holding their attention all the time. 
and making them unable to respond to the rest of the world. It's, you know, I say that and then I'm just like, well, how could that not happen to everybody all the time when you think about how bad things could get? But somehow it doesn't, you know, we, we just, <laughs> a lot of folks, they, they know about that or they are able to hear about that and kind of move on. And some of us, you know, we, we just, we have that sensitivity, that creative thinking that allows us to take it and run with it. And then you and I get to ask, what do, what do we do for those people as practitioners who are focused on helping people find more stability in the moment, more feeling that this moment is going to attach to the next moment and it's okay to let down in this moment, even when you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment, rather than stay at a pitch or activated in anticipation of what's going to happen in the next moment, which in fact, we don't yet know what is going to happen. You can get into this existential risk kind of analysis of the world and realize that wow, it feels more and more likely the more and more you understand it that something grand will go wrong. And then if you just look at the daily press, you can realize that even just now, things are already actively going wrong for some group, some people everywhere, somewhere, somebody is going through it. And you can take these through a creative thinking process to put you ill at ease all the time. Or cultivate some kind of relationship to that reality that allows you to still exist, knowing that at this moment, and this moment being able to attach to the next moment, one needs to find some kind of relationship with living, with existence, that allows one to be here now, as Ram Das would say, in that way. It's important for you and I to think back on that spectrum, right? And realize that some clients, some clients, some people, some people who are going to be impacted and affected, they are more or less capable of relating to their response and having that response essentially become productive, meaning that they have a thought about something bad that could happen and it comes in and it touches them, it gives them a felt impression, it increases their thinking process about it, or their feeling state about it, or it rubs them in some way. And they're able to recognize it. It catches their breath, and they're able to give themselves time for the next breath, or it gives them some emotion and tearing in their eyes as they hear about something. And that feeling is given permission and it doesn't excite or exacerbate itself to where it takes off running, but instead has some satisfaction in the moment of its experience and moves through as we often talk about it and settles in and integrates and could be seen as a successful miniature stress response. It could actually be a fairly large stress response like you think about something, you feel about something, you have that response and it really grabs you and sends you, as I often do, to the closet for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and just hiding in there, letting it feel itself moving through, probably crying or 
kind of doing some kind of thing and it is able, when it is able to move through, that can be a very rewarding experience. And most importantly, from our perspective, right, could leave the touched or triggered person on the backside of that arousal cycle with more capacity for participating and relating to the stimulus that caused that arousal cycle to happen without being overly influenced by the response, their response to it, because it's more or less dissipated, backed off, decathected, at least for now. And so within that range of people who are both touched and are able to move through their experiences, you and I as practitioners, we could think to ourselves that one of the things we're excited about being able to do for people is encourage them to do that. It's to say, hey, look, those feelings are valid. That first impression, that true physical and emotional hit that you feel when you consider these things, these scary things, these felt things, it's like it's it's, it could be worth your attention to allow your body, to allow yourself to appreciate those responses and give them time and attention, support to move through. That could be valuable and worth it to make clear that these are not just thoughts to put down. These are not just things to avoid. These could also be thoughts and feelings to relate to and have them move through. And for anybody who could have them move through, who isn't already doing so of their own, might be something to mention. And that's a nice thing that we could kind of see the rationale for like, oh, no, no, that, oh, when you watch the news, you've been, you've been kind of um, feeling a little caught. And what happens if you let yourself feel that for a few minutes? Does it change? Does it move through? Does it do something, you know? Well, further down the spectrum, of course, there those responses aren't going to move through, at least not in some more or less seamless organic intelligence kind of way. They're not just going to ride through the sequence. They're going to get caught and start to catch other associations or get fed by the sense that of worry that I'm activated and that it's not going to go away on its own or that when I feel this way, it leads to some other feeling like I've had before that I don't want to feel again. And so I try to stop it. There could be any number of different ways that it catches and starts to hold the attention or reinforce itself in such a way that it's not going to necessarily, quote, move through or become productive, but instead is going to trend toward torment. And it, somewhere along that spectrum that we're talking about there, where people feel that catch and it's not going to move through, there's still a range where if they do specific things or certain kinds of things, if they intervene on their behalf, or if they have some plan on what to do in those moments, they might be able to help themselves not get so caught by the reaction, by the worry, by the sequence that might take them further down into their distress. And while when introducing this idea to people as a practitioner, you might need to be cautious of how you do this so that you're not negating the truth and validity of the worry and the concern or suggesting that a person who feels the worry and concern should just do something in order to not feel it. Wouldn't it be the goal here? 
be the goal would be more like, is it helpful when you get caught by those feelings and thoughts? Or does it seem like it's more or less just taking you away from yourself and you feel less able to be here with your life and in your world the way that it is for the moment? Which ideally, at least in the time that you're with somebody in your office, is is not immediately threatening, ideally. At least a little moment of respite. And in that way, there might be like an invitation. Are does it is it seem okay if if we don't just reinforce the distress all the time, but we we work on your behalf or you develop some things on your behalf? You find some friends and family to support you if necessary in doing so to help this not always reinforce the distress signal inside of you, just to get the neuroception to not always get taken every time you have these worrisome thoughts. And if that's the case, if the person's willing to do that, there might very well be something, enough of things, options to do when a person is feeling that distress come up, but it's not going to move through on its own, but they can still notice it's coming up and do those things. And, you know, um, maybe the episode Milton's List, which might be episode 84 of Twig's SE Reflections, would probably be a good place to reference, like, how do I help a person develop a list of things that they can do to help ease themselves out of the stress response when they feel themselves getting taken by it? And, you know, amongst those, there'd just be all kinds of things on a person's list that could be found. And the idea is to find things that the person that you're talking to could do. So I'm naming out that range of the spectrum that I get caught and there is these things, feelings, impressions, they're going to maybe reinforce themselves if I don't do something as compared to just allow the reaction to move through, in which case good for the person to have, your client to have some encouragement, some planning, some reason to attend to that list in order to minimize the impact of those stress responses. Further down the spectrum, you know, it's going to be like harder to get out of this, harder to get out of this. And it gets down to a bit more into the range where from my perspective, we could see that by not actively doing something to try to get out of this response, we're going to get taken into it and more or less reproduce the upset in a way that is going to make it, this is a kind of challenging thing to come into awareness of, it's going to make it more likely to happen again. If we let it happen, if it's able to go off and do its panic, as it were, or its genuine, I, I can't breathe, or I can't think about anything else, or um, as it could easily be the case, frustration that leads to aggression inside of a relationship or frustration in inside of like context of work and all these kinds of things that could really leak out to not actively work to keep that at a distance could make it more likely for that same feeling state to repeat itself. It's a basic classic traumatological kind of thing. It's like this high arousal activated state happens and kind of forces my hand inside of my behavior 
it makes it more or less more likely that will happen again. And somewhere in that range, as you know, we talk here between you and I as practitioner to practitioner, we often need to see what amount of intervention we can bring to bear to help a client not continue to allow that to be reinforced. Of course, the feeling for most people in that situation is that they can't stop it from happening. They get on the runway of a distressing thought, they look into it a little bit, and there are plenty of reasons to reinforce it, and off they go into some kind of overcoupled sequence that just leads to a creative end of how bad it could get and all of the worry involved in that. And it could feel like a one-way runaway train, in which case it's important to help people see, oh, you know, this, this is actually doing you more harm and you have to be very cautious when it comes to helping people who are caught in the response to existential threats and the feeling state of needing to respond to them. Because one, they can't just talk themselves out of this, as per that woman that I was talking about from the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's, it's as active a threat experience as anything else. It's more that we have to like name out this is real for you and it's a real thing that's grabbing you and holding you and we need to try our very very best to have something else happen to minimize the impact of this to try to help it last for a shorter period of time to try to help the next round of this not come as frequently or as soon so you have more space in between we need to help change this pattern somehow, even if it's only just a little bit so that we can increase that change over time. And sometimes in here, I, I have to tell you, there are phrases that I ask people in particular, like one, would it be okay if we tried to change this? Because of course, when you're taken by the sense of an existential threat, particularly one that has to do with your identity, your culture, your affiliation. Uh, it's a, a very good one that I could name very easily, like the sense of affiliation with biophilia and to be aware of the challenges that the planet faces and that biodiversity faces. To have somebody say, don't get worried about that, don't get concerned about that, or don't feel your grief and your rage or concern when you have the thought about what else is going wrong, it could feel that you're being asked to deny your concern to become somebody who doesn't care. And let me tell you, that just doesn't fly. That just totally doesn't fly. So there is sometimes a need to get permission to say, would it be okay if all of those things are still true and your concern is still legitimate and we're not asking you to become stupid or apathetic or to not want these things to be different and even want to be active for some folks in pursuing making things different. And at the same time as we could say all of those things are true, is it also possible that we could encourage your body, your being, your organism to have space where it is less impacted you personally in the moment at this time in your life by these things so that you 
can feel less threatened and probably with that potentially more effective and even perhaps more accurate in your assessment of what it is that you can do of benefit for the situation. And that language might need to change in various different forms for different people and different contexts. But the idea is to try to get some kind of agreement that we're not denying the pain when we also recognize that we need to do something active in order to help it not be so much of itself and even potentially try to avoid it. In which case, here's another place for leaning on Milton's list. It's just that at that place where the stress response really gets people going when they get caught by these thoughts and feelings is to, and and they have like limited range of movement away from it. At that point, the list of what to do probably gets pretty thin. Like at one time, as I started my SE training, I just had to put a prohibition, for example, on reading the press and reading the literature that I was involved in of tracking challenges to the to biodiversity, especially. I just had to take a moratorium and say, every time I come into contact with this information, it triggers off my stress response. And then I'm just reinforcing my stress response every single time I come into contact with any of this information. So I had to separate myself for a good long while, in fact, from it. And that was not easy to do. And I am not the only one who would be challenged by that. So there is this kind of contract of, will it be okay if we work toward giving you some relief in this way? There's That spectrum, you know, probably goes further down to all the way, as I described that woman in Congo, with this psychosomatic impression that there is nothing else than this reality. And if I could say, down there, more the ideal or more the necessity, is to intervene to help what is happening to have less attention. In other words, if I was const- if, if a person is just chronically caught up in the stress response and they're just like actively in the stress response and it's of a ubiquitous threat that they can't actively do anything about, we might very well be trying to simply pull their attention away from noticing it or concentrating on it or in reality, probably concentrating on it as much because they are otherwise distracted by something else in order to just try to get more time away from reinforcing the threat. You know, you choose your style in that. Sometimes it could be confrontational. Sometimes it could just be distracting. Sometimes it could be really joining like, oh my gosh, I see your distress. Put that distress into this pillow. Squeeze this pillow. Show me how mad it is. Show me how upset it is. Show me how how real that is for you. Squeeze this pillow. Put it all into this pillow. Squeeze, squeeze. Now turn the attention towards squeeze. Now feel the squeeze. Feel the squeeze. And the movement of attention away from the lack of breath, the thought that's leading to the lack of breath and the reinforcement there to turn the attention into an activity, which in that case tries to use some of the energy and give a somatic kind of, you know, organization to the the distress that is otherwise just kind of helplessly and haplessly cycling inside the body. It's like to give it something to do. And meanwhile, kind of giving a patter, feel the pillow, feel the squeeze, feel the arms, feel, you know, grab, squeeze, do this, do this now, helping to pull the attention away from the thing that is more or less at that point in this 
kind of way of thinking at existential threats, like totally out of one's control. And here, giving a person something to do that is more in their control, even if it's just for this moment, do this one thing. So the list probably narrows. Tell me three things you can see. Tell me how many fingers I have here in front of you. It gets pretty directed like that. At times, if you have a contract that gives you purview to help somebody out of their loop in that way. Now that all said, you know, there's there's lots of self-care in there. There's lots of self-care in there. And anywhere along that spectrum, somebody could dedicate to purposefully giving themselves time away from repeating the sense of distress or purposely give themselves time toward pleasure, deactivation, settling, positive forces, social engagement, company with like others, people that you feel safe with, but who don't then reinforce the danger and the stress response by kind of bringing up the subject matter that constantly triggers off your stress response. So there would be all of those self-care things, walking, take it further, walking barefoot. If you really need, like, I really need to ground out in reality. It's like, feel the ground, feel the earth, pick up rocks, pick up sticks, do something in the garden, lift appropriately heavy things that give you this sense of weight and gravity, look in other people's faces, spend more time with other people touching, do active things that are known to influence the deactivation signal in the body, the sense of safety in the body, the awareness of the environment and the immediate sense. So the neuroception can say, hey, I'm not actively in threat right now. Taking time away from the signals that would say, oh, that's a thought or that's an impression, that's an image that would cause the stress response to go off. Milton's list is a way of saying it, of making sure that we are aware that there are lots and lots of things that we could choose to do with our attention and our time. Sometimes that'll be harder to do, sometimes easier to do, but nevertheless important to do, particularly if we find ourselves more or less or less or more, particularly the more that it happens, the more we have to invest in doing these counter vortex kinds of activities in order to help the stress response from the sense of existential doom of something bad that could happen that I can't do anything about and simply get a little bit more opportunity to feel being okay, more okay, less distressed here right now. It's quite a range. It's quite a range. Some people have to do more. Some people have to go on a sensory diet. I'm constantly doing things every hour in order to give my body the perception that I'm not in threat. Other people just have to give recognition that, wow, that scares me. Wow, when I feel scared, this is how I feel for a moment. This is what I want to say for a moment. And then as that moves through, I'm still aware. I'm still aware that things really are not as I want them to be. And I can respond to the world the way that it is now the way that I feel inside of it now. That's, you know, this is a conversation. What could I say to you as a practitioner meeting with people in this kind of way? One is to respect that their distress is real. We've said this already. You can't just talk your way out of it. Maybe you can influence your way out of it, kind of turn your attention out of it, talk yourself into recognizing that it's true, a real feeling, and there are other things you should do with your time or right now that 
if I do these kinds of activities with my body, I might get some relief from this stress response, et cetera, et cetera. And from a practitioner perspective or a client practitioner perspective, the role of appreciation of the pain, of the reality of this, that it's not just a thought in my head, it's something real for people. And that even if as a practitioner, you're not taken in the same kind of way to respect that for other people, they very well might be worried in that, oh my goodness, this is too much kind of way. That all said, there are also specific advantages to being an SE practitioner when meeting with people who have this runaway chain of thought. One is that you can kind of respect their pain and their challenge. You can help them understand the stress response and the arousal reactions to things and say, hey, look, you know, on some level, it's trying to be productive and help you. And it's just something that happens naturally. So you want to not get in the way of it, but allow it to feel itself and move through to whatever extent you can. It's another thing that it's saying that you actively feel in danger. So you should do things that help your nervous system, help your organism to feel yourself not as in danger when you're not actively in danger. Be around people that you know, like, and trust as an example. Take time away from stimulus that says that you might be in danger, even then in the exact moment you might have enough space from being in danger. And then to recognize that there are times and there are places where people are actively in danger in this sense of impending doom. That could be just from watching the world report to my particular people are in challenge to recognize that an ongoing threat, an ongoing danger is going to wear out the system. It's going to keep the stress response elevated for an extended period of time. And as it does that, it will have psychobiological consequences, which you and I, we know, right? It's like the sympathetic system will be up, we'll be in the fight flight response, but only for so long until we get exhausted from that. And the freeze response comes in and starts shutting things down or bounces back and forth, or to avoid the freeze response, we turn up the sympathetic system in a chronic kind of way. In any case, we see that modulation and insertion of deactivation over a period of time where the stress response is going to continue becomes extremely important. So that when we're with people, working with people, and we have some influence over their attention, and they're telling us about things that they're chronically worried about that aren't going to go away, that are going to be there tomorrow. Part of our potential influence is to help them see that if that stress and that danger is going to continue, that perception of danger is going to linger on a day-in, day-out basis, that it could become very important to do whatever one could to find some quality of modulation inside of that, which could be just that I take a little bit longer in the bathroom just to have a little bit more space for a few more minutes of the day just to calm down just a tiny little bit. Now, I know once you're in an active stress response thing, it makes it really hard to feel that it's safe enough to take any space and time away from thinking about the danger constantly. And yet that's one of our roles to be able to say, look, got to be able to lay down on the ground at some point during the day and let your body like try to let go a little bit so you're not always holding the despair or the aggression 
or the fear, some amount of letting go. You gotta hold somebody's hand for a little while and let some part of that help things not be so pitched the entire time so that there's at least some amount of modulation in place. The more modulation, the better. Those are all super valuable. Great. Love it. Hope you got enough out of that and you already have all your other self-care skills and empathy skills and everything to tend to people with this. And then I can tell you this special part about being an SE practitioner with all of this. Um, how to do that? Well, let's say it this way, right? Like if I am coming into my sessions with a past trauma history, and I've got these lingering self-protective responses that are either suppressed in my experience or repetitive in my experience and constantly causing me some kind of turmoil in my life. But they're there. They're nascent. They're waiting to get to do themselves and complete in the way that we think of implicit self-protective memory instructions that are saying, I need to run away, I need to fight back, I need to scream, I need to freeze. This kind of one of the core elements of what we think about in terms of what causes the lingering sense of trauma for people now that we understand the stress response in the way that more or less Peter Levine helped us to really get at here. As we see this, we recognize that people are actively carrying self-protective responses, involuntary self-protective responses, that when their associations, when their triggers, when, when the trauma capsule, as Bob Scare called it, or the stack, as you might hear Stephen Hoskinson call it, or like the coupling associated elements get triggered when associations to those self-protective responses go off, meaning a somatic state, a visceral state, a similarity in heart rate, a similarity in muscle tension in a particular part of the body, or similar thoughts, similar images, seeing similar signals in the environment, similar looking people or cars or our posture or movements coming close to or having some association to the associated signals of that kind of psychomotor pattern of self-protection that has been lingering and waiting in the nervous system, as we say. Well, as those get triggered up, right, they, they force people's behavior. They compel a reproduction of the stress response that is not unlike those precipitating events from a person's past. Maybe they've collected and coagulated and become mixed up with lots of other impressions so that there is just the general sense that when I get agitated, as an example, my body goes into a kind of just an anxiety attack and I don't know what to do. It, I just feel all of this different kind of stuff and it's hard as an example, to pick out a discrete movement pattern that is trying to execute itself because maybe there's a whole lot of stuff that's trying to happen. Well, when these triggers, these associations go off, right, they compel people's behavior, greater, lesser degree, depending on more or less how much noise is going on in the system. And 
when those are latent continuing reactions, it makes it more likely for stressors in a person's life to trigger them off and compel a person's behavior. Simple as that is to say, if as a practitioner, you can help somebody to resolve some of those incomplete self-protective responses, if you can help to complete that outstanding motor instruction pattern that says duck, that says turn from the sound, that says push back, that says growl like a dog, that says any of those different involuntary animalistic self-protective responses that might be lingering in the system that would be there lingering and frustrating the system and ready to get pinged by something that says, see, this is the same kind of thing. You're in danger. And then thus going off and compelling a person to feel more unsettled than the situation might actually require, but having this sense of, quote, the traumatic reaction going off inside of them. If you and I, as practitioners, can help anybody resolve or have less influence from those reactions, then at the same time, it makes it so that when stress is in their life, when signals of threat come, when those associations in their body state happen, their thought state happen, and their felt sense happen, when they come into contact with the next stressor, they'll be less likely to get as agitated, as annoyed, to be responding with the relative confusion of that much more incomplete response, and therefore more likely to be able to respond more appropriately to the current situation, which gives less the feeling of being overwhelmed and helpless and more the feeling of being effective and capable of responding. By degree, it gets to a place where you're like, well, I'm going to respond about as well as I possibly could to this, all the way from the other side of the spectrum, which is like, I'm going to respond as badly to this as possible. It's like, eventually, a person's nervous system could, in fact, complete enough of these responses where they get to start responding more spontaneously to the current circumstances as compared to being as influenced by the conditioning of the past. And while there's other conditioning paradigms at play in here that would matter for helping people with the sense of doom and catastrophic thinking and global high activation and worry about existential threats and my existence being wiped out, a central feature of being able to help people with this not be so triggered, be able to feel more competent and capable inside of those concerns, is to help them complete their own incomplete self-protective responses, which might have nothing to do with their worry about existential threat, might have everything to do with falling off their bicycle when they were five years old, or, you know, some kind of fight that they got in on the playground when they were 10, or a car accident at 13 or something that happened between them and their stepfather when they were 15. You know, it's like there, there will be just this range of things that, that don't have anything to do necessarily with the doom of the world or the current 
circumstances or the book that I read about the end of the world. And yet those same responses lingering in the nervous system and ready to go off as the nervous system gets activated and thus influence the feeling that something is wrong and thus influence the thought process that says, oh, wow, see, I thought about something that's wrong or could go wrong. And it gets reinforced by the impression that I feel that much more danger inside of myself. Us as practitioners, if we can get to the renegotiation of those self-protective responses, we can often help the intensity of concern to come down some, thus giving people more range to have more appropriate responses, which could include just like, oh, wow, see, it's the same information. The world has all of this catastrophic potential danger, and every day there's more evidence to it. And yet I can, this is one prospect, I can be in it and feel my reaction to it, but not be um, maybe put down in bed for three days every time I read the news. That could be important for somebody. That could be really important. And unbeknownst to most of us, the answer to that, or at least one possible path to get on, would be, funny enough, the completion of self-protective responses that have nothing in themselves, per se, to do with the sense of existential threat or the concern that might on another day put somebody into bed from worrying about it. Yeah. Which is something that could take a little bit of sophistication in making the transition from, because it could very well be that when you're talking with your clients and they're bringing up their concerns, their catastrophic worries, that you will see their self-protective responses express themselves and making the turn from the conversation about what's wrong into the discrete experience, the felt experience in the moment in your office could be a little bit of a transition because it could feel like it's not congruent. It could feel that it doesn't have an appropriate scope or reflection of the worry at hand. The worry at hand could be so attractive that you just have this impulse to talk about it. That could be the case for the practitioner as well, just getting involved in like talking about how bad things are with the client and a joining kind of effort. And yet the tension in the face, the speeding of the pulse, the higher activation in the voice, the tightening in the fist, the quieting, the distance, the tearing, all of those things might be in themselves a kind of key or doorway into the completion of the self-protective responses, which with completion might decrease the latent sense of activation or sensitivity in the nervous system so that upon a future exposure to the same information, the same sense of something that is ubiquitously dangerous out in front of me, might not have the same catch on my organism and therefore give more perspective on what to do about that, which has the sense that nothing can be done about it. And in that way, self-protective responses, completion of self-protective responses are a uniquely valuable thing that SE practitioners can offer to clients who get caught by the sense of, wow, something big out there is just just really out to get me 
and strangely, that could be got to or found or got relief from, not necessarily just by talking about the thing that I'm worried about, but by going away from the thing I'm worried about and into content about falls, car accidents, other self-protective responsive kind of things, or attending to the implicit reactions that come up inside of a session, even when you're on the content about the catastrophic nature of things or possibility of things. With that, I'd like to tell you two quick stories from sessions that I had early on in my work or somewhere early a couple years into my SE work. One was with Peter Levine. And if you've checked out my guide to the SE language, it's an online learning course about talking with clients. In there, I share a story about an initial session that I had with Peter. And in that story, I talk about how there's a moment where I get this sense that I'm kind of spacing out. I have the thought that Peter is trying to hypnotize me or has hypnotized me. And at the same time as I have that thought, Peter says, if you feel your head turning off to the right, maybe you just go ahead and let that happen. And that kind of brought up this argument inside of my head, like, oh my gosh, he really has hypnotized me. And then this other voice of trying to trust him saying, no, no, it's okay. You should let this happen. And I then paid attention to my head and neck and noticed that he was right, that my head had this feeling of turning off to the right. And so I decided to like go with the trust part of that and let my head start to turn off to the right. And sure enough, it turned way off to the right. Well, what I don't say in the video is that just before this, Peter and I had been talking about this chronic concern that I've had since childhood about the end of life on earth and the catastrophe of modernism and the direction of civilization and all these kinds of things. And he was kind of doing his best to appreciate my concerns and also kind of be more his reality check kind of like, okay, that's, that's your thing. And we can kind of see why that would be a concern. And at the same time, like, you know, life's been going for a billion years, planet's been here for five so he was holding a little reality check edge there, you know? And when we got to this moment where my head turned off to the right, part of what was happening in my image field was that I was seeing the catastrophe in the image channel that I had always been attracted to and pushing off in my own mind, like reading the literature that I was attracted to and being the activist that I did was and getting so involved in, in like the bad stuff happening in the world, I was just constantly at odds with the way things were. And in this moment with Peter, I was absorbing or accepting seeing in the image channel, this allowing of like what it was that I fear. It's kind of allowing this moment to happen. And it was really relieving to do that. It was an extreme dissociation. I went really, really broad. I saw a whole lot of things that none of us ever want to have to imagine or see. And when that hit its apogee and turned around and came back, my organism really calmed down. And I, I settled in. I, 
that was the, a session that was followed by an extensive running response for the next like 30 minutes or something. But after that session, it, you know, it's like the, the same information, which I had plenty of exposure to and was never, never going to not have. And yet, like, I don't know, more acceptance or participation with the fact that I live in these times with the way that this is and that it didn't have to trigger me quite so closely. Really, really important. And then I wanted to tell you this second story of a session, relatively similar period of time, about two years after I had started SE, about a year after I'd started SE. And I was in a session with Stephen Hoskinson, who was my mentor. And we were having a similar conversation because it was, like I say, it's my theme, you know? And so we were in that conversation. Steve was doing his best to kind of like stay empathetic and appreciative at the same time, kind of like aware that he's not caught in the same way that I am with that. And so he had that kind of reality check kind of place going on. And I'm kind of coming out, sharing this thing that goes on in me all the time, this kind of paranoia all the time. And as I say something about it, Steve caught a tiny little micro movement of my upper lip above my teeth, you know, and he caught what I said and repeated it back to me and then said, it sounds disgusting. And I repeated back. I was like, yeah, it's disgusting. In which case I did the same thing with my lip. And then Steve took his finger and he kind of pointed to his upper lip which some of you have seen me mimic in the Practicing Our Lines class, the kind of comedy improv class where we talk about communications and languaging stuff and we play out mirroring and all of that kind of business. And there's this way that you can do mirroring by pointing to that part of your own body that you're trying to bring your client's attention to in their body. So he pointed to his own upper lip, which brought my attention to my upper lip and he repeated again, oh, it just sounds disgusting. And I I was invested and involved in the process at this point, you know, and so I said, yeah, disgusting. And he only had to say, let me ask you to just feel that. What do you notice right now? What do you feel right now when we say, yeah, disgusting? And that turned my attention into tracking the felt sense for a moment. And my dear listener, I will tell you, I then experienced the single most exquisite feeling of disgust that my particular body has ever had the opportunity to feel. You know, like from, from the tension in my upper lip and the somehow reverberation through my cheek muscles and the whisker bed, as it's called, you know, where your beard is and such above your nose or below your nose around your, um, well, where the whisker bed for other critters would be. My has a mustache there. Well, down through my throat, down into my belly, and then a rising feeling all the way from the base of my belly up through the back of my neck, top of my mouth, the whole disgust impression as a flowing sequence of sensation that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And on the back side of it, on the end, you know, it's kind of coming with that flesh and reorientation looking around kind of thing. It's like a definitive pause in the story, the story being not a 
discrete narrative, but me reflecting on the state of the world and my response to it and how just bad it is and going through probably talking about the particulars of it. And Steve noticing my visceral reaction as I was talking about it and then managing to turn the attention toward me tracking the physical reaction to what I was, well, what I was experiencing probably best said as a sensory impression of my reaction to what I was thinking about and, and kind of reporting and getting to allow that to move through led to a remarkable sense of relief on the backside of that, just in the same kind of way that that wild dissociation allowance that I had had with Peter had also allowed for. Well, I just have so many of these kinds of stories of the relief coming from the completion of felt sense, sensory motor, probably best said self-protective responses, completing in the midst of or being triggered up by my concerns and then in their completion, allowing me to go back to my concerns, which remain as active as they ever have been, but with more space and more permission for me to have my own existence at the same time as I understand that everything is at stake. I believe that that relief is waiting and available to many of our clients and that both part of what we can do is help complete past stress responses for people in the sense of incomplete self-protective responses from the past that when triggered by the sense of existential threat then reinforce their activation on a person's experience of that existential threat and so we can help complete those reactions and diminish their influence on people's reaction to existential worry at the same time people are going to have implicit immediate reactions to just the worry that comes forward from current events ideas that might of bad things that are going to happen new things and those reactions are in themselves from petite to extreme self-protective stress responses in themselves and those two deserve the allowance to complete of themselves both of those require some amount of permission to not only concentrate on the conversation of the worry, but also to notice that that conversation triggers these somatic felt impressions. And that if we could put that conversation aside for a moment and track through the felt reaction, we might then find that we can help the body deactivate and still come back into relationship with that subject matter and find more room to respond and to be able to sleep and to be able to still stay in relationship with others and to maintain a more at home place, even if that is inside of a continuing lingering threat and danger. Not that all of us are going to get to be super calm in the face of an ongoing immediate danger in our community, but we could at least hope to see more modulation so as to help us have more space to 
read things with a broader perspective and hopefully find the most mature answer that one can find. In making that turn into tracking the felt reaction to such things, it's helpful if a client already participates or is willing to participate with that somatic experiencing process that we do, you know, to ask a person who is taken by their catastrophic thinking to pause it and turn their attention to their experience and reaction to it is in some way asking people to turn their attention into their red vortex experience. And if they're highly distressed by it and caught by it, and they don't have any experience with doing this kind of tracking and or their nervous system is less likely to move through these responses and more likely to get caught up in the noise around it, that's a very tricky proposition and one that I would probably recommend you, dear practitioner, be very cautious of and either get the conditions, the preconditions together that allow you to turn a person's attention and have their participation with the tracking experience, or you touch on these things, the felt response, just very lightly or in passing or with some amount of modulation and how you go about that so that you more or less keep the rapport, more or less keep the story moving forward and help people feel more the containment and support while you move toward getting those preconditions in place rather than just let's pause the story. What do you feel right now? Oh, I've never told anybody that what I feel right now is that my heart is about to jump out of my throat. And now that you've asked me to feel that, I now feel that much less safe with you because what I feel when I'm with you is how my heart is about to jump out of my throat. You kind of want to have a working relationship before you ask people to do that. In that way, I can tell you one last thing at the close of this episode is that the program, a little presentation that I worked on, on how to introduce clients or how to take clients through that sequence, that learning sequence, it's pretty much finished. That program is called Where to Start. You can find it at liberationispossible backslash where to start, where to start, all one word. That's out there now for you, pretty much just as easy as that and pretty much everything I can say about how to take a client through the learning process that I had already gone through when both Steve and Peter asked me to track in and feel those things outside of the conversation. With that, my dear friends out here in this world that we love so much and yes, that we care about so much and are also many of us knowingly preoccupied that it is in threat, I am wishing you and everybody else the very, very best. And I hope that you know, as well as I do, that Joan Baez was right when she said, action is the antidote for despair. There are so many different ways that one can be active and for sure helping other people through their reactions to the sense of overwhelming danger is certainly one of them. I'm wishing you the very, very best out there. Stay safe. Take care of your neighbors. Love big. Have a good life. I'll be back soon. Bye-bye now. As a last thought, maybe I'll quote Margaret Atwood. Other people have said it too, 
but I like her rationale the best. Nolite te bastardes corborondorum. Don't let the bastards grind you down. <laughs>